sermon text this morning on the topic, the last topic of our Apostles' Creed sermon series. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Our text this morning is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you turn to Titus 1, it'll be page 998 in the Pewback Bible. You want to grab that if you've got your handheld Bible, Titus chapter 1, or you can also follow on the screen. We'll be in and out of Titus chapter 1 throughout the sermon today, so you want to keep at least a thumb there. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us many, many great and wonderful promises. Help us to believe those promises. Lord, I pray that the preaching of your word this morning, by the power of your spirit in us, would increase our faith, and that our hope would be sure. This is in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Like I said, this is the last of this series. It's been a blessing to me, I know it's been a blessing to a number of you. Uh, We'll be back in Matthew next week, so Matthew chapter 25, I know it's been a little while, you might want to read Matthew chapter 24 and 25 to prepare for next week, we'll be back in Matthew's gospel uh, for the remainder of the fall, now that fall has begun. We have a tendency, many of us do, and and this is just a a natural human tendency, isn't it, to to think that, that newer is better. All technology is good. All progress is good. I remember being in in high school debate, shocking to you, I know that I was in debate in high school, but I was. Uh, I remember being in high school debate class a long time ago, and, and I had made some argument, I don't remember what it was, based on the premise that progress is always a good thing. I really, I really don't even remember what the debate was about, but I do remember my teacher asking me, after I had made that argument, Dustin, can you prove that all progress is good? Yes, is that necessarily the case? And all I remember thinking, as a 16-year-old know-it-all, what in the world is she talking about? She must be some sort of stupid because everybody knows that all progress is good. It just is, right? It's an assumption that we make. And it's taken me a while, but here I am, 25 years later, coming to the same conclusion that old Miss Higgins was pushing me toward. Not all progress is good, is it? Some progress is good. It's good that we can do heart surgery. Many of you are alive. Many of you have loved family members who are alive today because of this 
technology. It's good that we can transplant organs. It's good that we have new treatments for diseases that were once considered fatal. It's good that we can refrigerate our food. Clean water is readily available. A lot of progress is good, but not all progress is good. And that's especially true when it comes to theology. The Christian message, what it means to be a Christian, it doesn't change. What we believe about who God is and and what it means that he's redeemed us and what it means to follow Christ, those truths are are rooted not in the, the advancement of human civilization, but in history. Those aren't discoveries. They are actual historical events. Look, at, look again at the creed. If, if you just want to look at it, it's in, it's in your bulletin. God created. That's a historical event, isn't it? Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He ascended to heaven. Those are all historical events, things that happened in history. Some of them, of course, take more faith to believe than others, things that we don't know anybody who saw those things, so it does require some level of faith. But they are in the past. That's what I'm getting at. They're things that have happened. You keep going in the creed. We believe that when Christ ascended, he sent his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We believe that the Spirit formed the church to be the place of God's dwelling here on earth. Those things happen. They're not ideas. They're not philosophies. They are supernatural, historical events. We believe that the message of the church, just working our way through the creed, the message of the church is the forgiveness of sins. Josh showed you last week in that that great commission passage from Luke. Remember that? Let me show it to you again. Luke chapter 24, verses 45 and 47. Then he, Jesus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that. All right. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then look what he says next. You are witnesses of these things. The the message of the forgiveness of sins is rooted in something that the disciples witnessed. Forgiveness of sins springs from the reality that Christ accomplished the forgiveness of sins at the cross. And that event happened in history. Right? Are you starting to get the picture? Christianity is about 70% historical narrative and about 30% of things that we believe based on that 70%. But it's that 30% that makes all the difference, isn't it? We, some of you biology people might know this, We share about 70% of our DNA with slugs. And it's the other 30% that counts, isn't it? Some of you, maybe more sluggish than others. (laughs) But but you see what what I'm getting at. What we believe isn't based on mystical truths that that somebody got from eating strange forest mushrooms and holding crystals. What we believe, our faith, is our understanding of events that have already happened. That's what the Christian faith is. It's it's our understanding of events 
that have happened in history. And we have hope because of what has already happened. And that hope that we have defines what it means to be a Christian. And what is the Christian hope? Well, it's those last two lines of the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That hope that's held in Christ, because we're waiting on his return as we sang, hope is in Christ, but he brings us these things, the resurrection of the body and life after everlasting. That hope began with a promise. And it became more sure in Christ, and it bears the fruit of godliness in our lives. All right, so that the Christian hope is the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. This hope began with a promise, it became manifest in Christ, and it bears the fruit of godliness in our lives. That's three things. If you're counting, three points. That's how we're going to break up the rest of the sermon. The promise, fulfillment, and the fruit. The promise of the resurrection, the fulfillment of the resurrection, and the fruit of the resurrection promise. We saw in, in Titus 1-2, onto the promise. We saw in Titus 1-2 that, that, that eternal life was a promise from before the ages began. Did you see that? In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That means before creation, before Adam, before anything was made, that was made, before any of that, God had promised eternal life to humanity. God promised a resurrection long before he sent Jesus, the Son. And we see that as you read the Old Testament, you see that promise of the resurrection hinted at. It's in the Psalms a little bit. It's in Isaiah a little bit. It's in Ezekiel a little bit. It's clearest in Daniel, in that passage that John read. In Daniel, the promise of the resurrection isn't so much hinted at as it is declared, isn't it? Look look again at Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And many of those who sleep, means they're dead, they sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake. Some to everlasting life, there's that, resurrection, everlasting life, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's a resurrection promise, isn't it? Those who sleep in the dust shall awake. Right? Dust you're made, dust you returned. They're in the dust. Shall awake. They shall be raised up. When you wake up in the morning, you get up, you rise up. And the rising up here is from, from the old life to new life. From the old body to the new glorified eternal body. Do you see the glorification language here? The wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. The promise of the resurrection is before the ages. It's recorded throughout the ages, especially here in Daniel. And then as we move our way through Scripture, as Jesus arrives on scene in Jerusalem, we find that that many, not, not all, but many Jews still believed in that ancient promise of the future resurrection. Turn with me to John 11. I didn't write down the, the page number for you, but John chapter 11. 
as you're turning there, you find there in John 11 this story of, of Jesus and his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. John tells us Lazarus was deathly ill. Jesus was in another town. And Jesus delayed, intentionally delayed, going to the house where Lazarus was, knowing that he was ill. He waited, and he doesn't make it in time to heal him. Lazarus dies. Mary gets angry with him. Martha gets really angry with him. Two sisters are, are mad, understandably, because Jesus, they know, could have healed their brother, but he didn't. And now their brother's dead. Jesus is at the home, and here we are, John eleven twenty three. 23. Jesus is talking to Martha here. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will arise again in the resurrection on the last day. So there, did you see Martha's expectation? Remember how I said many Jews were believing in that resurrection that was to come? Martha believes it. Lazarus will rise in the resurrection on the last day. She's talking about that day that Daniel prophesied of. The day that, that devout Bible-believing Jews were all looking forward to. Martha has faith that day will come. Because she believes the Bible. Because she believes God's promises. Here comes the turn. Here right in Matthew 11 is when we see the turn go from promise from before the ages and throughout Scripture to fulfillment. Jesus is that turn. Jesus is the hinge of history. With Jesus comes the turn from believing in the resurrection because God promised it to believing in the resurrection because it has begun. It has become manifest, as Paul said in Titus 1. What's happening here in John 11 with this conversation between Jesus and Martha, Martha hasn't yet made the connection between Jesus, who's right in front of her, and that day that is to come. And that connection is the point of John 11. That's why I believe that, that John includes this story here in his gospel. John wants, to see, wants us to see that the day of that resurrection promise has dawned. It has become manifest. With the arrival of Jesus, the Christ, the first rays of, of the sunrise of the day of resurrection are, are breaking through on that eastern horizon, piercing across the sea. Look what Jesus says next to Martha. Jesus said to her, Martha, I'm inserting that. He just says, he doesn't say that. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Martha says she believes the resurrection is coming, and that's when Lazarus is going to be raised. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What's he telling her? He's saying that that Old Testament promise of the resurrection, the promise that Martha is trusting in, and the everlasting life that comes with that resurrection, that is fulfilled in him. The day of resurrection and Jesus are inseparable. Eternal life and Jesus are so synonymous that Jesus can say he is the resurrection and the life. And then look what Jesus asks her at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? 
He's asking her if she believes that he is the resurrection and the life, right? He's asking her if she understands that the before the ages began promise of the resurrection, she understands that's being fulfilled in him. And what happens next is pretty amazing. A whole lot of Bible comes together in verse 27 if you pay careful attention to Martha's answer. Look how Martha answers Jesus. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What did Jesus ask her? She said, he said to her, Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Right? And she said, Yes, I believe that. You are the Christ. The only way this conversation makes sense is if the Christ and the resurrection are the same thing. And you know, they are. They are the same thing. The Christ is the resurrection and the life. Martha, you see, is an astute theologian. She knows her Bible. Martha is making the connection that John wants us to see. Martha's making the connection that we need to, to make to understand our faith and we under, to understand Christianity. The resurrection is totally dependent and only happens through the Christ. Why? Well, for one, as we read in Daniel, it is the Christ who will return in judgment. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. All of the promises of Messiah talk about Messiah being the Lord who returns in judgment. And judgment day, everybody knew this, is the day of resurrection. When the Christ returns or when he comes, all will be raised, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's judgment day. And that gets us back to that Daniel 12, 2 promise, doesn't it? So in terms of Martha's, what we call her, her eschatology, what she believes about end times, she believes that it is the Christ who comes on the day of the Lord, on judgment day. And it is the Christ who raises up and rewards his followers with eternal life and judges those who stood against him. That's why she can say, in response to his question, do you believe I am the resurrection of life? Yes, you are the Christ. But secondly, there's another reason why this makes sense. The Christ is the resurrection and the life because the Christ is the one who would first be raised up. Remember, as we've been looking throughout the Apostles' Creed, how many times have we come to Psalm 16, verse 10? Five, maybe, times? Psalm 16, 10, do you remember the promise about the Christ? The Christ will not be abandoned to Sheol, death. His body will not decay. It was understood the Christ was going to either not die or would rise from the dead. Both of these truths connect the Christ to the coming day of resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life because the resurrection will occur when he comes in glory. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life because the resurrection begins with his resurrection. And we'll get to more on that in a minute because that's really important. So hold a pin there. What, what happens next in the story in John 11, as you continue, some of you know the story, Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. That's kind of the, the point there. When Jesus did that, what was he doing? He was, he was confirming what he had told Martha. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Let me show you. I'm going to raise Lazarus. 
And when he did that, he was foreshadowing what was coming. Don Carson says it was an an acted-out parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. Good way to put it. He was giving assurance, wasn't he? He was giving assurance to Mary. He was giving assurance to Martha and all of the disciples who were there watching this and everybody else who saw Lazarus raised up. He's showing a sign. I'm the one who's going to raise all y'all. Everyone. It's like when you go to a, a baseball game early. You go to Padres game early and you want to watch the batting practice. Right? It's fun to do. Cleanup hitter is there at the plate and he's just blasting home runs into the upper deck during batting practice. It's an example of his power. Raising Lazarus is Jesus' batting practice, right? We know what happens next. Just a few days after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is betrayed himself. He's arrested. He's beaten. He's crucified. He dies. He's buried. And then on the third day, Jesus is raised. Only that's not batting practice anymore, is it? This is the Christ doing the, the most Christ-like thing he ever did. He proved beyond a shadow of doubt he was indeed the Christ. He was vindicated, as we saw several weeks ago. He was declared to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and because Jesus was raised, something really, important, something really important happens in this broader story of the Bible. Jesus moves us from that confident hope in the future day of resurrection that was based on God's promise. He moves us from a confident hope to a sure hope. Why? Because God has begun to fulfill the promise. In Christ, because of the resurrection, our faith is strengthened. We have assurance in the day of resurrection that is to come. It's not just a promise anymore. It's being fulfilled. Think of, think of this sort of like the confidence that you would have in a relationship, right? So you're, you're, you're dating someone. Not a whole lot of confidence in that relationship. There's some, you know, exclusivity. But anything could happen. And then you're engaged. And what happens? Your confidence increases a little bit in that relationship. You have a little more faith in that person. They're at least willing to say they will marry you. And then the wedding day comes... And now you have a lot more confidence, don't you? This, the relationship becomes that much more sure. There is assurance that this person will be faithful, that this relationship is going to stick. So because Jesus was raised, we've moved from a confident hope to a sure hope that we will be raised. Our confidence is greater. It's more sure than even the most faithful, committed marriage you ever know. Look at how confident that the writer to the Hebrews is in the surety of our future hope. Let me just show you his confidence. Hebrews 6, 18 through 19. Making an argument here, but just look at his, the language he uses. It says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, think of the word refuge there, this is a a stronghold, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, not just encouragement, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Look at verse 19. 
we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about Jesus. The Christian hope, he says, is in Christ, and it is a sure hope. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. And so our hope in the future is sure. It is a steadfast anchor of the soul. You can bet everything on it. Our hope in the day of resurrection is a sure and steadfast anchor. Why? Because Christ is that hope and Christ has been raised. Not only are we awaiting a promise from someone for whom it is impossible to lie, we're not just waiting on someone, on, on God's promise, knowing that it's good because he has strong character. That should, that's good. It was good enough for Martha and it's good enough for all the heroes of the faith in Hebrews. But he has already begun to fulfill that promise. All we're doing now is waiting on his return. He's already come once and done all he said he would do. That's why the coming of Jesus is the good news. God promised Christ would come, and Jesus came. God promised that Christ would die for the sins of his people, and Jesus did. God promised that the Christ would be raised up, and God raised him up. We've already now or we are now in redemptive history, we have already received the fulfillment of a whole bunch of God's promises. And so we believe he will continue to fulfill his promises. We believe that because he raised up Christ, he will one day raise us up as well. When, Jesus, or when God raised Jesus from the dead, the, the hope in the resurrection of all God's people went from being a promise to a reality. It's not something that God said he would do anymore. It's something that God was doing. Turn with me to to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where I can prove to you it's not just me saying these things. All this comes from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The, look what he calls it. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remember that language from Daniel? Those who sleep in the dust shall rise. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Has come. The resurrection of the dead has come. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's coming. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Firstfruits is, is an agricultural term. Right? The, the firstfruits, it is exactly as it sounds. The firstfruits are the first of the crop to ripen. So when the firstfruits ripen, it's a sign to the farmer that the, other, the rest of that crop will ripen soon. All right, so, so think about grapes. The grapevine, uh, we, we have a grapevine. You might have one. If it's grapes that you're growing and the grapes there in the sunniest spot on the vine, closest to the trunk, if they're beginning to ripen and get sweet, those are your first fruits. When they get sweet, I know that the rest of the grapes on that vine will soon 
ripen. The first fruits are the sign that the rest of the crop will soon be ready. 1 Corinthians is teaching us here, Paul's telling us by the Spirit, this is how it is with Jesus. This is how it is with the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first of those raised. He's the beginning of the resurrection that is to come. He's the first sweet grape. I want you to see the connection here. Because what, what Paul's showing us is that these aren't separate events. It's not Christ's resurrection as one event and our resurrection as another event. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection is one long event. One long harvest. Christ the first to ripen on the vine and then the rest of the vine. The church just takes a little bit longer. It seems like a long time to us. All right, if we're counting, we're close to 2,000 years now. Not a long time for God. With God, speaking of this exact thing, Peter says, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. To put it in perspective, he's just waiting for more fruits on the vine to ripen. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 All of the fruit must ripen. All those who are just budding from the vine now must come to full faith. And God is patiently waiting. He's bringing them all in, who by his mercy are going to be brought in. But, but what we're to see, because of Christ's resurrection, is we have confidence that that day is coming. It has already begun, because Christ has been raised. We have assurance that we will be raised because Christ has been raised. And here's the thing, that assurance of things hoped for is to have a very real effect now. In this life. I told you there were three parts to this. The promise, the fulfillment, and then the last thing was that we talked about the fruit. Godliness is the fruit of hope. Godliness is the fruit of hope. Let me show you a couple passages that we get this from. The first one we already read, our main passage this morning... Titus chapter 1, let's look at it again. Paul, servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So recognize, first of all, that we're not even finished with the sentence. This is a long sentence. Titus 1, 1 through 4 is one long sentence. We're leaving out the last clause, verse 4. And within this sentence, we have really one main idea. And the big idea is Paul's calling, his duty, his, his ministry. And that duty is to be a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, King Jesus. That means he serves the Lord by being one of the sent ones of King Jesus. Jesus. 
And he's spreading the reign and he's spreading the rule of King Jesus in a particular way. Do you see what that particular way is? It's by serving the church. What the Bible consistently titles as God's elect, God's chosen one. Paul's focus is the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth. And their knowledge of the truth, he says, accords with godliness. In other words, the more they know about who God is and what he's accomplished, and the more their faith increases, the more godly they become. There's a causality there in that relationship. You look at 2 Peter, the beginning of 2 Peter, knowledge of God increases and godliness increases. That's why we study together, isn't it? Why we read books written by Christian authors. It's why we look at the Bible together. It's why, why we want to know more about what God has done because in doing that, we become more godly. And the more godly they'll be, the more they'll appreciate and love and delight in God. And the more that happens, the more they'll obey Him. So, so that's easy enough. We've gotten to verse 1. That's easy. Problem is verse 2. Look at the beginning of verse 2. You have this, in the hope of eternal life. So, so we talked about prepositions a couple weeks ago, right? A prepositional phrase is a phrase, a clause that begins with a preposition. Here's our preposition, in, in the hope of eternal life. A prepositional phrase is supposed to modify something. It's, it's referring to something in this sentence. What is it referring to? What does it modify? It's kind of ambiguous. Look at it in your Bibles. I want you to see this with your eyes. This in the hope of eternal life. Is that Paul? Is is this hope of eternal life, is that going back to Paul at the beginning of the sentence? Is is he saying he serves the Lord in the hope of eternal life? Partly, yes. But he's saying more than that. What he's saying is that our faith, the faith of the elect, And our knowledge of the truth and our godliness is all founded on, it's all grounded in our hope of eternal life. Our faith, this is, let me just try to define some terms for us. Our faith is our understanding of things that have already happened. Right? That's the Christian faith. So in terms of the Apostles' Creed, just to brass tacks here, in terms of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus is the Christ, he was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, descended to the realm of the dead, rose again on the third day, descended into heaven, sits at God's right hand. That's the faith. That's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The resurrection of our bodies and eternal life, that's our hope. Okay, you see the two? And that hope is grounded in the faith. So our hope in eternal life is, is, is a state of being where we grow in knowledge and godliness. Is that starting to make sense? So put it another way, let's do the reverse. Sometimes that helps. If we had no hope in the future, then we would have no reason to pursue godliness today. Right? Or as Paul says it back in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. It's a total waste of time. Christianity is a total waste of time if our hope is only in today. 
but it is a life worth pursuing if we have a confident and sure hope in the future. If Christ is just a good idea to make us happy, this is stupid. Because there are a lot of things that can make us happy. But if we are all going to die and rot and decay and that's it, or worse, if we're all going to be judged and condemned, what's the point of godliness? Why not eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Do you see what the comparison here? But we pursue knowledge of the Lord, and from that we grow in godliness because we live even now in the hope of eternal life. Look look how Paul puts it later on in the letter. Titus chapter 2. Another really long sentence, but it's a beautiful one. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. I told you, long sentence, but beautiful. Christ has come, he's brought salvation, and he's training us, the Holy Spirit in us is training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and he's training us to live forward-looking, self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. How? Why? In the waiting. We're waiting. This is what we do while we're waiting. Waiting for what? Our hope. Look at verse 13. The context of all of this Christian life, the state of being of a Christian, is waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hope in life and death because when he returns, we receive the salvation that we're waiting for. New bodies, eternal life with him. And and while we wait, in the waiting, what happens? We grow in our zeal for good works. We're growing in our godliness. Do you see how it works? 1 John 3.3 puts it very simply. 1 John 3.3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Very simple, isn't it? John is summarizing the same argument. The longer we hope in Jesus, the more we hope in Jesus, the more like him we become. But the hope is key, isn't it? The hope is key. Here's here's why it's key. Here's what this means practically. If we are living, if you are living in fearfulness, that this life is all that there is, what happens to you when, oh, I don't know, a deadly virus shows up? What does the fearfulness that this life is all there is produce in you? What is the fruit of that fearfulness in the face of a deadly virus? What is it? Anxiety? Worry? 
frustration. When, when, when other people, with other people, when they don't do the things that, that, that you think they should do to protect your safety, leads to anger, doesn't it? It, it leads, turns you toward inward on yourself. And on your own health as the highest good. And it causes you to hope in things that are not secure hopes. And at the same time, what, what if this life is all there is and, and you're thinking about things like pleasure? So you've got fear on one hand, pleasure on the other. What does this life look like if pleasure is your highest good? If you don't trust that God's promise, you don't trust in God's promise that eternal life holds the most pleasure, the greatest pleasure, then the pleasures of this life become paramount. Let me show you what that looks like. One enjoyable beer becomes three, four, five. Why? Because if one is good, well, more must be better. And then drunkenness becomes the norm. Or, or think of entertainment. If this life is all there is, if, if you're not hoping in the next life, think of entertainment, whether that's sports, whether that's TV. For, for many people these days, it's video games. Whatever entertains you. If it becomes ultimate, if there's no future hope of something greater, then the fun, the relaxation, whatever you want to call it, if it's video games, well, if one hour is fun, then two, three, four, twelve hours must be more fun. Maximize pleasure. If the gift of, of sex with your spouse is a good thing, then that same pleasure can be multiplied through adultery. If this life is all there is, why not maximize all the pleasures of this life? Well, for one, all of those temporal pleasures become destructive curses when they're disordered, don't they? When they're pursued outside of God's good and righteous law and outside of his good and righteous plan, any good thing that God has made for our pleasure becomes a destructive thing when we make it the highest good. So there's a very practical reason not to pursue God's good things as our highest good, it will destroy you. But secondly, we do have a hope. There is a greater pleasure. There is a greater joy. We have the hope of the resurrection and the eternal life. And that hope, as John says, purifies us. It transforms us. When we live in waiting for Christ, then we are constantly aware that there is something better on the horizon. And we do not seek to be satisfied in things of the earth. So we don't have to find our fulfillment in work. We don't have to find fulfillment even in marriage or in our families or our children. We don't have to find the pleasures of the world as the highest pleasures because they're not. Christ is. Hoping in Christ and what he brings at his return rightly orders everything else in this life. That's how John can say it purifies us. Pleasing Christ, serving Christ, obeying Christ becomes our goal, 
our delight because He's our hope. And so we delight in Him and we hope in Him rather than ourselves. See the difference that hope makes? The hope of the Christian life is what produces godliness in the Christian life. So if you're struggling with obedience to God in whatever area of your life, if you're struggling with the pursuit of holiness, I just ask you this, are you hoping in the resurrection? Or is your hope somewhere else? And I understand this because this is is hard. Hoping in the resurrection is not easy. It's difficult. It's hard enough sometimes to really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, let alone that we will one day rise from the dead. And to truly believe it with such confidence That doesn't come naturally to us, does it? And we can say we believe it. We can sing that we believe it. But do you live like you believe it? Not all the time. Because you don't really all the time believe it. It's hard. It doesn't come naturally because it's not natural. Rising from the dead isn't natural. It's supernatural. So when hoping in the resurrection that is to come becomes difficult, when it is difficult, know this. It is not you who brings this hope up in you. It's the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives us this hope. It isn't natural. It's supernatural. It comes from the Spirit. Galatians 5.5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Where does it come from? The Spirit. The hope of eternal life, that doesn't come from you. Praise God, it can't come from you. It is hope that produces godliness, and if that hope came from you, well, then you'd be producing your own godliness. You see the problem? And then you'd be saved by your own actions. That's not how God works. We're saved by grace alone. It's a gift. Every bit of salvation is a gift. Even the hope that we have is a gift. So the hope that we have has to come from God. It has to come from the Spirit in us. And that's why so often when you read Paul's letters, you see him praying for the churches that they would have hope from God. Look what he says about his prayers for the Ephesian church. Ephesians 1.16. He's talking to the church, but talking about his prayers as well. I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers. And what does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You see it? The hope? Where does it come from? God, from the Spirit in the church. This is why at the end of, of Romans, you have this beautiful benediction. Romans 15, 13. Look what Paul says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope 
See it again? Where does our hope come from? From the Lord. By the power of the Spirit, we abound in hope. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. So what does that mean when you're struggling? If you're struggling with fearfulness, pray. Pray that your hope would be in Christ's return. Pray that exactly. If you're just saying, God, take this fear away, you're just going to replace it yourself with another fear. But if you pray that your hope would be in Christ's return, fear just melts. If you're struggling against sin, pray. Pray that your hope, your delight, would be in Christ's return. If you're struggling with obedience to the Lord, if you're struggling loving anybody, ask God to give you hope in Christ's return. Why? Because the fruit of hope is godliness. And God gives us the hope. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but as our song leaders come up, I want to encourage you after I pray to take this time, the time that, you know, when they're getting ready, pray that God would give you that hope, that your hope would be in Christ's return. Pray. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises And Lord, we thank you that even knowing that you are good, that you cannot lie, that you are always faithful to your promises, you've already begun to fulfill your promises. And so for us, faith is that much more sure in Christ. Lord, I pray that the hope of eternal life, the hope of the resurrection of the body, would transform us in this life. Let us not be a church that just talks about these things on Sunday mornings, but lives these things. Let our hope, Lord, be a state of mind. Let it, let it be a, a way of living. And so, Lord, when someone sees our way of living, they might actually ask, what is the reason for the hope in you? And we can tell them about Jesus. So Lord, make us a holy people, make us a pure people, make us a confident people in Christ's return. We ask this in Jesus' name.